chapter 4. John's already got you in Matthew 28. Just uh, turn back a little ways to Matthew chapter 4. And uh, we're going to close out Matthew chapter 24 this morning. So we're going to read, or I will read to you verses 23 through 25, and then we will pray, including praying for John and Aaron, and also for Peter and Debbie Dodds, our missions partners to Taiwan. And he, again that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have access to your word. We thank you that we can know you by and through your word. And, um, and so, Lord, we, uh, we just come before you in prayer to express our dependence upon you, our need of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we worship in 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 song and in prayer and, and in uh, the preaching of the word, Lord, we are, uh, we are dependent upon your spirit to work in us, to bring life to our dead souls, and then to continue to grow us, in a, in not only in a greater knowledge of you, but a greater affection and delight for you. And so, Father, we... Um, We ask that this morning, as we approach your word by your spirit, that we would approach not only with humility, but with expectation that you will do great things in us and through us and among us. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to to see the gospel spread, whether that be supporting those whom you have called to go to far places and share the gospel or, or, or just our faithfulness to share the gospel right here where you have called us. So, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would do great things through us. Lord, we pray for John and Aaron, again, that their time here would be restful, that they would enjoy their time home and with family and with friends, that they would be energized to go back and continue the work that you have called them to do. Lord, we continue to pray for these people and ask that you would uh, give an ever-deepening faith to those who have truly trusted you. And, and we know that that comes at a high cost for them socially and relationally and even in their family relationships. But Lord, we pray that they would love you as you uh, told us we must more than uh, father or mother or brother or sister. Lord, we pray for those uh, who continue to help not only with the literacy program but with the translation of your word that you would bring about uh, an obedience of faith in them as well. Lord, we, we pray for Peter and Debbie and these two new young believers who were part of this uh, this camp, Lord, we pray that you would bring uh, great discipleship opportunities uh, to them, that their faith would be strengthened and grown, that they would walk with you truly and steadfastly. Lord, we pray for the youth who served at this, uh, this kids' summer camp, that you would uh, grow their faith as well, Lord. And we pray for all the adult and youth leaders, um, or, or for the need for adult and youth leaders to be trained at the Joy House. Lord, we pray that you might raise up uh, new believers, but also those who are there to serve with them, and there might be great uh, spread of the gospel there in Taiwan as, as they minister. And so, Lord, again, we ask, as we turn now to your word, just your favor upon us, um, 
and that we would uh, that we would have open eyes to understand your word, soft hearts to obey it. And we ask all of these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Sorry. This, uh, this passage that we look at today, coming now immediately to the end of Matthew chapter 4, uh, really is the very start of Jesus' public ministry. Up to this point, we've seen his birth, we've seen uh, much of his um, being crowned king as we continue to look at this upside-down kingdom, and not only his um, his, his coronation, but his commissioning into ministry as he is baptized and, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and as he begins to call these first disciples to himself. But starting in verse 23, we see that Jesus went throughout all Galilee. If you have an NASB or uh, an LSB, your, um, your, uh, your translation might read something like, and he was going about throughout all Galilee. And I think that really is a better representation of the imperfect verb here because there's, there's, why this is so important and I bring it up right at the start is because there's incredible intentionality in the very start of Jesus' public ministry. Just saying, and he went, might sound like he went one place, but this is intentional. It is ongoing. The imperfect tense behind this word, went, signifies a long period of time or a process as he was going through Galilee. Now, Galilee is in the north in Israel. It is uh, the, the northern area around or to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And, and uh, unlike maybe what we may think, history from around that time records quite a few cities and some, even most of them, being very, very large. It would have been an agrarian location in, in Israel and the, the incredibly fertile soil would have drawn people in, but we shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't be lost on us that there was also large cities throughout this area as well. And so Jesus going about throughout all Galilee wasn't just a one-time thing. We are seeing the very start of his public ministry as he habitually goes through that region to specifically do three things. He was, as we can see, going about through Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It was a ministry of teaching, a ministry of proclaiming. The word proclaim there is the same word we translate throughout most of the rest of the New Testament as preaching. And so he was teaching, and he was preaching, and he was healing. This passage here, as simple as it is, is not just fun facts from Matthew. He's not just giving us a little bit of information. In fact, These three verses, small as they seem, really put before us an incredibly important question. And it answers that incredibly important question. And and, and not only is it important because of the question, it's important because of what we see. What we see him doing. Here we see the word of God announcing the kingdom of God. 
We see the king of kings announcing the kingdom that he came to provide. But here is the all-important question before every single one of us this morning, and that is this. How do we know that Jesus was authorized to speak on behalf of God? How do you know that Jesus is one authorized by God to speak on behalf of God? I've seen mainstream news segments on people who have claimed to be the reincarnate Christ. Some of them, I'll let your imaginations fill things in, and you probably can't imagine too far on some of these things. Some of them have said that the grace of God is passed along to people through their bodily fluids and or functions. How do we know when somebody gets up before a group of people and claims that he is Jesus in the flesh again, and that the grace of God is passed through indecent and atrocious acts, how do we know he's, he's not right? See, if we're going to dismiss somebody as, as, as somebody who is not Christ or somebody who is not authorized by God, we had better understand, or not authorized by God to speak on behalf of God, we better understand who they are who were authorized to speak on behalf of God. How do we know that the prophets were authorized by God to speak on his behalf? How do we know that Moses was a man who was authorized by God to speak on their behalf? How do we know? How can you and I be certain today that what Jesus said was and is true and is an accurate ref- reflection of what God the Father wants us to know? That is what this passage right here is showing us. This is, as we continue through the book of Matthew, the credentials of Jesus. We're going to see his authority to proclaim the kingdom here this morning. But it's not just his authority that we see, it's also a pattern of ministry that we see. And so I want to look first at this pattern of ministry, what Jesus actually did as he went about doing the the ministry of the kingdom, and then I want to close by showing us um, how how this passage gives us Jesus' Credentials. And so let's start by looking at the three priorities of Jesus' ministry. The three priorities of Jesus' ministry. Number one on your outline there is that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of teaching. It was a ministry of teaching. As he was going throughout all Galilee, he was teaching in their synagogues. The first thing Matthew tells us is that Jesus had a teaching ministry and that this ministry was specifically in the synagogues. If the temple in Jerusalem was a place for sacrifice and ceremony, the synagogue was a place for teaching and learning. The scriptures would be read there and explained. It is actually the precursor to what the church would become. A gathered people, specifically gathered around worship and word and prayer. 
It was in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, that Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah and reads it and proclaims that it had been fulfilled in the presence of the people. To read from the word of God and then to explain the word of God would have been a normal practice in the synagogue. And so Jesus went to the religious centers in Galilee and taught the people who he was. Maybe this is what Paul was modeling his ministry after when he went to the Areopagus and even to the synagogues throughout, uh, throughout much of, of um, uh, Asia, Asia Minor as we understand it in that day. And so Jesus' ministry was first a ministry of teaching. Secondly, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of preaching. Not only was Jesus' ministry a teaching ministry, it was a preaching ministry. Specifically, we're told what he was preaching, that he was proclaiming or preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We may ask at this point, what is the difference between teaching and preaching? And i got to be honest and say, I think uh, sometimes we make way, way too much of this. I've heard some people say, well, my pastor's more of a teacher because he, or my pastor's more of a preacher because he. I'm not sure you can just draw on these two words to, to really uh, split hairs on whether your pastor is a preacher or a teacher. I think maybe the best definition I've ever heard of preaching came from uh, the English pastor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who called preaching logic on fire. So I don't think we can split it really far. I don't think we can say, well, teaching was one thing and preaching was another. I think maybe all we can see different here in this text is the location. There was an expectation in the synagogue that the scriptures would be open and explained, and Jesus did that. He was teaching in the synagogues. But the word for preaching here, Caruso, would have brought to this audience the idea of a royal herald. So in this day and age, and Galilee is, is really a distinct area, it is, not, it is the, the only area in Israel at this point in time that is not directly under Roman control. It is under Roman control, but there's also another ruler there who's uh, uh, Herod, I think it was Antipas at this time, who is ruling there. And so it's kind of under its own authority, under this other king. And, and if that king, if, if the Herod Antipas wanted to get a message out to all of these cities in Galilee, how would he go about that? Unlike today, he couldn't push a notification to your phone. He couldn't go to a printing press or a copy machine and print a flyer. Anything written would have to be handwritten. And so the easiest way of mass communication from a king would have been by herald, by somebody who would, gone, uh, who would have gone out and maybe a reference that we would hear or understand from, from movies is to cry out, hear ye, hear ye. And then he would proclaim a message on behalf of the king. He would probably have to carry credentials because we would want to know if, if this was our context today and the president had sent somebody here to Walla Walla to proclaim a message on behalf of the president, we would want to know and see and understand their credentials. We would want to know that they were authorized to give a message, and we would want to know that that message 
was accurate. And, and this word of proclaiming would have drawn that imagery out into the, the mind of the readers in, in the, the day that this was written. And so it's interesting understanding that that's what it means to proclaim, that what he was proclaiming was the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. A royal herald proclaims a message about a kingdom. How many of you, if I called America a kingdom, understanding it's not exactly, how many of you feel like most of the news about the kingdom today is good news? Wouldn't you enjoy some good news of the kingdom? You know what, I, what news I've heard? In the last week, there's been two shootings in Milton Freewater, an active shooter at Wild Horse Casino in Pendleton, and some guy took axes to car windows in the McDonald's parking lot last night. We could use some good news. And that feeling is probably the feeling of the audience that Jesus is preaching to. Antipas means against all. So you got a ruler in, in Galilee who just hates everybody. Not to mention that uh, Israel has been oppressed for hundreds of years. If we consider Israel and Judah together, you've got Assyria, and then Babylon, and then the Medes, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And they've been oppressed as a people who are supposed to be a free people unto God for centuries. And here comes Jesus, heralding a message of good news, of a kingdom. People were desperate for a kingdom. People were desperate for good news. But the problem is they didn't necessarily want the news that he was going to bring. Because he didn't bring them nor you and I, in this life, political good news. He brought eternal good news. They wanted the news that he was going to rule and conquer, not that he was going to die at their own hands. But that when he died, he would not be dying for his own sins, but rather the sins of you and I and them. And that he would rise again, a claim that they found preposterous, but that in having risen again would offer us all forgiveness for our sins. They didn't want an upside-down kingdom. They wanted, uh, from their perspective, a right-side-up kingdom. They wanted a kingdom, uh, I mean, this, Israel has done this since they anointed Saul king. They wanted a king who would rule over them knowing that he would enslave them and tax them and take their children for war and work. This is the king they wanted. They didn't want an upside-down kingdom of a God who was going to give his life for theirs. Who was going to build his kingdom not by on the death of others, but on his own death. And that his kingdom would not be a kingdom where he rules by force with an iron fist, but where he rules through faith from a people who love him and delight in him and adore him. He offered an upside-down kingdom. 
But the question still stands before us all. How do we know he was authorized to offer that? And that's where the third bit of his work comes in. It was, thirdly, a healing ministry. And it was an incredible healing ministry. Notice as verse 23 goes on, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, or the end of verse 24, actually, that he was uh, healing every disease and affliction among the people. I spent a fair bit of time digging into the language of verses 23 and 24 because they say... uh, similar, but at the same time, very different things. Look at verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. In verse 23, he healed every one, and in verse 24, he healed everything. I think it's safe to assume that at this point in Jesus' ministry, as he's going throughout Galilee, there's probably not hardly any sickness or disease to be found anywhere. He's not just healing every kind of disease, he's healing every disease. Unlike today's miracle workers, put that in air quotes, who usually can only do one thing, like take away a headache or lengthen a leg. I'm not making this up. And when the healing doesn't happen, they blame you for not having enough faith. But Jesus and the apostles healed anyone, anywhere, at will, of anything. Jesus is healing everyone of everything. And this is so important for us to understand because this is where we see the credentials of Jesus. Because in Scripture, I'm going to make a bold claim here. I'm going to back it up pretty quickly. So forgive me if we go fast. But I'm going to make a bold claim. All miracles in the Bible are always given to validate someone as a messenger of God. It is always, not the assumed, the stated purpose of every miracle that ever occurs in the Bible. Every time somebody does miracles in the Bible, it is to show that they are an approved messenger who represents God. Not just so that they can do good things to people, Though that might be part of it. I think many of us oftentimes can be tempted to think that, man, from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible is full of miracles, and we don't really understand why they're happening today. But when we understand the timeline of Scripture, one thing we see is that that's not true. In fact, uh, there are only three periods of time in the Bible where miracles are going on. Eighty years is about the length of each one around Moses who gave us the law, around the prophets, who gave us the prophets, and around Jesus and the apostles, who gave us the New Testament. Isn't it curious that each time miracles are present among the people of God, it is at a time in history when God is giving us his written word. 
Why would that be? It's because miracles are always given to validate the messenger. But I would charge that it's not just, that, that's not just an assumed thing in Scripture. It's a stated thing in Scripture. Let me show you. You don't have to turn to these. You can write them down if you want to. But let me start with Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This is when God is telling Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And here it is, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And it's not even Pharaoh who God is worried about. He's saying, look, take this, your staff, throw it on the ground, turn it into a snake, pick it up, now it's a staff again, and I'm giving you the ability to do these things that the people of God might understand that you're a messenger of God, rep- giving these words to them on behalf of God. So much so, in fact, that later in this chapter, It's a little bonus material. I didn't put this in in my uh, notes. But so much so that later in the chapter when Moses is like, hey, but I'm I'm, I'm a man who's slow of tongue and slow of speech. And he says, well, take your brother Aaron. He will be as a prophet to you and you will be as God to him. Now, is God calling Moses God? Of course not. But he's saying that God gives a message to a prophet And the prophet gives the message to people. But he goes on. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gave Moses the ability to do miracles at will. And and I would say the miracle workers in Scripture were so able to do miracles at will that Moses is even in bad faith, able to strike a rock, bring water out of it, and God is angry with him. The ability to do miracles was so strong among the people who were authorized to do this that they could even abuse the gift. But Moses, and thus the first section of our Bible, the law, is given to us by a man who was authorized by God to speak on his half. And the proof is in the miracles. Similarly, in 1 Kings, when Elijah battles the prophets of Baal, and if you don't know the story, I'm not going to take the time to explain it there. or Now you can find it in 1 Kings 18. But let it just be known to us that these prophets try and get Baal to light this sacrifice on fire, and it doesn't happen. And so 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 36, says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, It had been about three in the afternoon, I think. Uh, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, here it is, 
and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah was given the ability to work miracles so that people might know that what he said, he said at the word of the Lord. And I think this was so much understood in the nation of Israel that by the time we get to the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry, we even see Nicodemus teaching us this. Because in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus sneaks out by night, probably the chief teacher of all of the Pharisees in Israel, sneaks out to Jesus by night, and he said, and, and we're told in John 3, 1 through 2, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now there's the question we're asking. How do we know that Jesus is a teacher who has come from God? And Nicodemus tells us, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And Nicodemus tells us how he knows. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, Jesus, it's a little scary to come to to talk to you. I'm the teacher of Israel, and you're this rogue rabbi, and your message is way off compared to anything we know. But we can't deny that you do the things that those who are authorized to teach on behalf of God do. And what does is, what is the rest of the conversation entail? how one might come into the kingdom, the the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is also described this way. In Acts chapter 22, verse 22, Peter at Pentecost proclaims, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Jesus is called a man attested to by signs and wonders. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12 and 14, verse 3, the apostles are spoken of in the same way. In fact, the New Testament doesn't really use the word miracles as we do. It uses the word signs. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. In Acts 14, 3. And listen to the connection between teaching and signs here in this passage. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so the apostles are preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and God is validating them as witnesses, as heralds, by granting them signs and wonders that they can do at their hands. Miracles always validate the messenger. And I don't think the church is going to see any more miracles until we get to Revelation when there are two what? Prophets. And it shouldn't surprise us that the prophets of Revelation are able to do miracles in Revelation because they're doing miracles for the purpose of of being validated as messengers on behalf of God. People don't have the gift of miracles today because the scriptures are complete. And we won't see them again until the two prophets of Revelation. I'm torn to know whether I want to see that or whether I don't. 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pre-trib, so I, I'll be gone either way, but you get the joke. Now, I must clarify something. Because what I'm saying here is miracles as a gift done at the hands of people has only happened at three points in time in the history of humanity for about 80 years to validate people as those authorized to give us the word of God. The question might be rising up in your mind, are you telling us that miracles don't happen today? No. Well, then what the heck do you mean, Logan? Here's what I mean. God is authorized, not by us, to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, according to his character. I'm not saying God doesn't do miraculous things today. I think he absolutely does. What I'm saying is that he hasn't given anyone the gift of miracles to do what they want, when they want, as, as, uh, the, uh, as validating them as a messenger of God. Because I'll tell you, if, if I had the gift of miracles, which I do not, and if I were able to exercise them in the way that the apostles did, I wouldn't be doing things like some of these TV guys do and go around to malls and lengthen people's short leg. I would go to the hospital and clear it out. I'd go to the nursing home and send people home to their families. Marsha would be throwing her cane in the garbage this morning. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. These guys who, who wrote God's word for us, the law, the prophets, and the New Testament, they were authorized to do miracles in this way. We're told, in fact, in Scripture, how to seek miracles. Did you know that? Did you know that you are given instructions in God's word as to how to seek a miracle from him? James chapter 5, verse 14 Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we could talk about what it means to anoint with oil another time. There is a formula here, by the way. Notice it doesn't say, don't tell the elders of your church and then be sad when they don't come to the hospital. It happens sometimes. None of us as elders and pastors are omniscient. We don't know when everybody is struggling But we welcome you letting us know what's going on so that we can come pray for you. I think we've seen miracles as a church just this week. Still some questions to be answered, but Will, you gave me permission to share this. You had uh, surgery on your mouth this week, and in all of the things leading up to having those wisdom teeth taken out, they, they were looking at this mass and worried about what it was, and then they were going to biopsy this mass on Thursday? Wednesday. No mass. It's on the x-rays, but Wednesday there was no mass. We, we were praying for a girl uh, when I was pastoring in Arizona 
who a week before brain surgery had a scan of her brain uh, and this tumor in her brain. And then we'd been praying for her, as had many churches in the area, and she needed to have a, a scan done on her brain the morning of her surgery because they just take an additional scan right before surgery to make sure that there's nothing going on in there that has changed. No brain tumor. Send her home. No surgery. I'm saying God does miracles. I'm saying he doesn't give individuals the gift of miracles unless they're authorized to speak on God's behalf. Now, with that theology packed all into this, let's return back to our text. Sorry for the excursus. Look at who Jesus is. He's teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Why should we listen to what Jesus has to say? Because he is part of a very, very small crowd of people throughout history who have done miraculous things, all for the purpose of God attesting to the fact that he authorized that person to do those things. The rest of the book is is going to see what Jesus teaches, and we're going to start the Sermon in the Mount next Sunday in chapter 5, and it's incredible, but here... Matthew is giving us Jesus' credentials. He's saying, you need to listen to this one. Right here before the Sermon of the Mount, you got to understand that what he's got to say, it's upside down. Oh, but you should listen. He's he's the one to say it. And so I want to draw out three things for us quickly here as we close this sermon. Three three really important uh, uh, points for us to understand. First, is, is in this, we see the incredible compassion of Jesus. He didn't look at people and be like, hey, I got a message to proclaim. Could you just leave me alone? He healed them. At times when he needed rest and the crowd showed up anyways, he healed them. When the outcast of society touched the hem of his robe, and were healed, he stopped and paid attention to them. The first thing we have to see in this is the incredible compassion of Christ. Which is mentioned in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to heal and forgive. And I think one of the questions before us is, is that the compassion we have? When you come across sinners on the news or in your neighborhood, at work, or at play. Is this the kind of compassion that you have on them? Or or do you think, man, how can I stay away from those people? When you see the sin and sickness of others, what response are you drawn to? 
What happens when that sinner is your spouse or your child? Are you drawn out in compassion for them? We, we cannot escape the incredible compassion of Christ in this passage. Secondly, we must see that in these verses, the light of the world is calling sinners out of darkness and into the marvelous light of his kingdom. His upside-down kingdom. And we, we must all ask, to what kingdom do we belong? And if you are not part of this upside-down kingdom, if you are living in the darkness I would implore you today to step out of that kingdom and by affection for Christ, step into the marvelous light. And thirdly, I would encourage us all to be very, very careful to truly understand what it means to be a Jesus follower. I would encourage us all to be very, very careful about what it means to be a Jesus follower. Because in verse 25, it says, And great crowds followed him. From Galilee, that's west of the Sea of Galilee, and the Decapolis, that's the ten cities northeast of the Sea of Galilee. From Jerusalem and Judea to the south, beyond the Jordan, that would be modern-day Jordan. People from all over the place, even all Syria earlier in, in this text, is coming to him to follow him. But next week, he's going to start teaching. He's we've been presented with his credentials. Next week, he's going to start teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's pretty upside down compared to our natural thinking. And you know what happens when he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? A whole bunch of those people leave. Thousands of people follow him when he's feeding them. But they, then he teaches and they take off. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are, are you leaving too? There's lots and lots and lots of people who follow Jesus, but who might not be followers of Jesus. And the fact of the matter, what we're going to see from this point in Matthew to the end of the book, is that the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the smaller the crowd gets. And this has always been true. This has always been true. The closer you get to the cross, the more you're going to be confronted with the fact that that is what you are called to take up every day in order to follow him. The crowd doesn't get bigger the nearer we get to Golgotha. Because the cost gets higher and higher. But I'm here to tell you, the view gets better and better. It's worth it. The closer you get to the cross, the smaller the crowd gets. There are, lots of there are lots of people following Jesus. He's a good teacher. There's lots to learn here. Maybe he's my get out of hell free card. 
who have not surrendered themselves in affection for the Savior to taking up their cross and following him every day. Be careful to truly understand what it means to be a Jesus follower. To follow him out of love for who he is and not merely out of a desire for what he has to offer. Father, give us great affection for your son and great affection for you. Lord, thank you for not just sending this unsuspecting man to die in our place and giving us no evidence that he is the one authorized to speak on your behalf and to die on our behalf. But that you have attested to him with great signs and wonders that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who can save us. May we, may we weigh and measure what it means to follow Jesus and find him worthy. And, and then to understand that when we find him worthy because of his death and resurrection and because you give us his righteousness, we will never be found wanting. At least not before you. Not in terms of righteousness and the security that our futures can have. Father, let each of us today count the cost and find him worthy. Let us understand that the closer we get to the cross, the more we see it costs us, but the better the view gets as we behold your glory. And may you call those who don't yet know you out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we